kind of a mindset in terms of treating female athletes as second-class citizens. Women athletes, even in 2021, are, are still somewhat, um, you know, second-class citizens. Hello all, and welcome to Second Class Citizens, a podcast dedicated to exposing, deconstructing, and solving the gender disparities in Division I NCAA athletics. My name is Tegan Graham, and during my sixth and final season of playing Division I college basketball, I will be taking you through a detailed journey of the different elements of this conversation, ending with some accountability and solutions for the future. A lot of amazing people will contribute to this conversation. We're talking to sports economists, Big 12 athletics directors, the president of the Women's Basketball Coaches Association, ESPN media directors, academic powerhouses, and social media stars. And we're all talking about the same thing. Why is women's college sports viewed as so inherently valueless by our society? And how can we change this? Now, why am I choosing to dedicate my master's research to looking into all the different ways female student athletes are undervalued? Because someone once told me, if you see a problem and that problem bothers you, why not try and be part of the solution? So here are the facts. Welcome to the ride. And at the end, I encourage you to make up your own mind. Historically, what's happened is that there's there's been a presumption that it's inferior and that it's not worth paying attention to. Within the United States, women have made great strides in entering spaces historically dominated by men. The world of sports, once considered only appropriate for men, is one of these spaces. The assumption of gender equality that has infiltrated our society makes it pretty hard to believe that fundamental gender injustices still exist. And although women have been competing in college athletics for over a century, the female student-athlete experience is very different to the male student-athlete experience. This was clearly demonstrated in the 2021 NCAA men's and women's basketball tournaments. An inspiration, some could say, for this podcast and for this research. Unfortunately, things on the women's side have not been good lately. And on social media, there's been a bit of an uproar. The disparities present at these tournaments were glaringly obvious. The men were given access to the fanciest weight room you can imagine. Olympic lifting racks and endless free weights. What were my teammates and I given? A stack of dumbbells, no heavier than 30 pounds, and some yoga mats. Yep, you heard right, yoga mats. It should have ended here, but it didn't. The gear bags that each tournament received was, let's just say also different. While I was given a sweat towel, my male peers received a duvet. And while the NCAA were kind enough to provide us some entertainment during our quarantine before the tournament started, my puzzle set was 150 pieces, while the men's was 500 pieces. We were tested for COVID-19 every single day we were there. Turns out the gold standard of COVID testing, according to the FDA, or more commonly known as the PCR test, was only used at the men's tournament. The famous March Madness logo was not included on any of the women's gear, or actually used at all during the whole women's tournament. Speaking of the women's tournament, on the men's side of the tournament, there is no mention of gender. In fact, there never has been. NCAA, <laughs> I think a lot of us would say that they don't do a whole lot, right? But, I mean, you look at this and it's just flagrant. I mean, should we even be surprised? 
Structurally, the men's and women's basketball tournaments are set up completely different. To begin with, up until the end of 2021, there were 68 teams that made the men's tournament and only 64 that made the women's. The women's staff is half the size of the men's and the top NCAA women's basketball executive doesn't report to the NCAA president, Mark Emmett. The men's top executive reports directly to Emmett. And there's no incentive to change any of this. Men's programs get payments of over $200 million to conferences for championship wins. There are zero payments to conferences for women's championship wins. Zero. So at the surface level, why should we care that men get 350 more puzzle pieces, right? Because of the message that it sends. Sports economist and Harvard graduate Dr. Andrew Zimbalis explains this. There's a vicious cycle right now. The vicious cycle is that we're in a culture where people underappreciate or even way underappreciate women's sports. And mm -hmm. as a result, the, the fans pay less attention to it. And because the fans pay less attention to it, the media gives, gives the sports less coverage. And because the media gives the sports less coverage, uh, fans remain less interested in it. So where do we break this cycle? Is it on fans to come to games? Is it on the media to cover women's sports? Or maybe it's on the media to give women the respect they deserve when they cover women's sports. Is it on the NCAA to create a structure where women's sports can thrive? Or is it all about money and therefore on major sponsors to actually invest in women's sports? And what about universities? Do athletics departments need to be doing more to promote and market their women's programs? And how could the new NIL laws where student-athletes can profit off their own name, image, and likeness disrupt this vicious cycle? This podcast will address all these questions and more. Because something needs to change. Or female athletes are going to continue to be the losers in this equation. It's a self-fulfilling negative prophecy that women are losers. And because of Title IX, we have to invest a little bit. But... We're never going to invest in them as an asset or a product. We're really just going to do it as a cause or a charity. That's Corey Close, the head coach of the UCLA women's basketball team and the president of the WBCA, the Women's Basketball Coaches Association. So let's just quickly touch on Title IX. Title IX is legislation that prohibits sex-based discrimination in educational institutions that receive federal funding. It's important to note that the NCAA is a private institution and does not receive federal funding, so it is not subject to Title IX. In fact, the NCAA actually opposed the application of Title IX to college sports. Title IX has drastically increased the opportunity for female participation in college sports since its introduction in 1972. But what is Title IX really about? Title IX does not require uh, equality. So what it requires is equity. Dr. Elizabeth Daniels, an academic powerhouse in gender and sports studies, explains that Title IX is about creating equitable opportunities, not equal opportunities. Now, this distinction is really important. Equality means that everyone is treated the exact same regardless of need. Equity means that everyone is given what they need to succeed. It's not that I want to take away opportunities for men. I just want to foster and invest and protect and enhance opportunities for women. If you look at equitable opportunities across Division I athletics, there are some serious gaps. And this is not just a college basketball issue. 
Official NCAA reports reveal that women's programs at the FBS level, which is the most competitive subdivision of NCAA Division I athletics, receive only 30% of competitive opportunities, 42% of scholarship funds, 29% of recruiting dollars, and 18% of operating budgets. Female college athletes are denied a total of 128,300 sports opportunities every single year. To put it in dollars, females are denied over $750 million in scholarship funds and $158 million in recruiting dollars every year. So, the money, the media, the NCAA, the university leadership, the university culture, and the future. That's what we're about to dive into. So buckle up and join me on the quest to uncover the truth about the value of women's sports in college. 